Whether you're a seasoned expert or concerned citizen, we invite you to join us on Outer Insights. With in-depth interviews, engaging discussions and expert analysis, Outer Insights offers a fresh perspective on the issues that matter most. Outer Insights, where the conversation never stops. It's a privilege and an honor to welcome Diane Hawker. She's a writer and Julius Clanons. He is um, a longtime Aotearian in the Outer Insights studio today. Good afternoon and welcome to Outer Insights. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon. Diane, we are celebrating your book, How to Steal a Gold Mine, and that covers the Aurora story. So I'll ask you to kick off the conversation and just tell us a bit more about the Aurora Gold Mine, your book, and what you cover in this book. Well, um, Ilsa, the, the, the book takes us a little bit back in time to 2009. It was a very different time in South Africa. You'll recall it was a period of the Zuma administration, um, and there were a lot of uh, political players at the time who were trying to get involved in the extractions industry. Zondra Mandela and Kulubuse Zuma were amongst the directors of Aurora, along with the former president Jacob Zuma's lawyer, Michael Halley. And basically, the company rose to prominence um, as a result of them bidding for these mines that were previously owned by Pamodzi Gold. The mines were under liquidation and there was an urgent search for a buyer. And on the scene came Aurora Empowerment Systems. They were promising fantastic things. They promised to uh, spend 650 million rand capitalizing the mines in the purchase and also in refurbishment. They promised that the workers would be able to retain their jobs. And they also promised that, um, you know, there would be additional perks available for the workers such as them being able to um, gain ownership within the mines as well. And over the years, things then deteriorated. What we saw is that most of the workers ended up losing their jobs, but not being compensated adequately or, or properly, properly through that process. Um, and the mines actually went into decline. And my book takes a look at why and how that actually, that actually happened. It's, it's something that I've worked on over years. I would say probably collected information over a 10 year period, which I didn't know was going to go into a book at the time, but I, I had kept it as I was working on the story throughout my time at the Sunday Independent as well as at ENCA. Um, and the story just kind of stuck with me ever since then knowing that the issues were not fully resolved and that these workers actually, a lot of them, have still not been paid their final compensation um, through that entire process. What is actually heartbreaking about this story and about your book as well is the absolute heartbreak of ordinary people. People literally died because of the corruption at Aurora Mine. And I would like us to discuss this more in depth. I just want to say I've been to Aurora. Um, it was probably 2010. When was the height of the poverty there and the, the social outcry? Can you recall, Diane? Well, I think it began in the in the Christmas of, of 2009. That was when, you know, it became clear that workers were not being paid on time. And then it continued into 
2010, with a lot of them still having hope that they would be able to get their jobs back or get some sort of payment. Mm. And then we saw, you know, um, some of the union's solidarity in particular, assisting with food parcels, some NGOs also coming and trying to assist with food parcels. But ultimately, the workers were left to their own devices, really. Over the subsequent years, you know, 2012, 13, 14, and 15, I visited the mine, in particular the Springs Mine, quite often, uh, speaking to the workers as the court case was unfolding in the High Court in Pretoria. Um, and they would often come and picket outside court and, and protest and, you know, obviously speak about their, their plight. And you would literally see these men shrinking in size over years because they didn't have enough food to eat. I think the last time that I visited the mine was either 2015 or 2016. And that was pretty much the last time that it was quite safe to visit because a large portion of the Springs, Springs mine had been taken over by illegal miners and a lot of the infrastructure was stripped away. So it really wasn't, you know, actually safe to go there anymore. And, and, and speaking to the, to the workers there who were still staying in very dilapidated hostels, you know, most of them were saying that they were living on very little money a day. If they could get 20 rand from scrap, selling scrap metal, you know, they knew that could tide them over to get them a loaf of bread or something like that. Others admitted that they had actually gone into a life of crime because they, they couldn't, they didn't have any other way to, to, to actually sustain themselves. And then more recently in, um, during the pandemic, I, I spoke to, um, a woman by the name of, of Susan Ferreira, and, and I start the book with her story and I go back to it a little bit later in the story. And, you know, her story is just completely heartbreaking because her husband committed suicide and her life has never, ever been the same since then. When I got to her house, she wanted to offer me, you know, a cup of tea and she said she doesn't have any sugar in her house. And that's the the level of destitution and poverty some of these people are dealing with. You must recall that, you know, mining has always been a, a lucrative industry in South Africa. But around 2008 and 2009, we saw the industry changing. We saw the global financial crisis and a lot of things, you know, started changing. So it wasn't necessarily as lucrative. But people who had been in the industry for years had always had that belief that they would be able to stay in the industry and get their pension payouts and other monies owed to them. But with that liquidation process happening, a lot of them lost out on those expected funds that they were hoping to receive. That is actually the biggest heartache of it all. They didn't just lose income on a temporary basis and it was recovered after a few months. They lost on many, many years of work. Some lost uh, on pensions that they've worked for for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And I remembered the despair hanging in that town. Um, I spoke to pawn shop owners that said to me, they cannot take any more stuff because there's nobody buying the stuff. Everybody's just bringing uh, goods in to be pawned. I, I went to a former mine captain's house 
They also wanted to offer me tea, but also apologized and said they literally don't have money for sugar or milk. And they were living off the solidarity food parcels. I spoke to some of the workers from um, the Transkei and other parts of South Africa that said to me, they cannot travel back home. They cannot live here. They have nothing to send home and they have nothing to survive on where they are. And I remember the many suicides that people were speaking about. But I would like you to take us back a bit to how it was possible to strip a mine of its assets. And then I would like you and Julius to just tell us why nothing came of any of the investigations into the Aurora deal. I think it's definitely important to contextualize the Aurora story in the part in our history that we were in. We now know of the state capture period as people who've lived through it. But at the time that this was going on, the state capture period was, you know, kind of beginning. And even though Aurora was, or the mines that Aurora took over were private entities, you do see those elements of state capture in the fact that nothing actually took place. The, The master of the high court held lengthy investigations to try and determine what actually happened at the mines after it became clear that the liquidation process had not gone as it was supposed to. They, they investigated the, the activities of the Aurora directors, and they also tried to look into the what had actually taken place with one of the former liquidators, Inva Mutala, who it became clear he had a very cozy relationship with the Aurora directors. There was evidence submitted that he had actually made a loan to Aurora. So he was playing both referee and player at the time. And even though this information exists and the reports were submitted to the Department of Justice, to the NPA, to the SIU, nothing took place. Um, And I believe that that's that's really a function of that state capture period. The, The SIU, for example, needs a presidential proclamation to actually investigate further. So so they had the evidence before them, but they didn't go further. I, I spoke to the Hawks a number of times. They said that they were investigating various things that, that were you know said on the record. There were cases submitted, but those cases never went anywhere. And may, maybe you know uh, you know Julius can also come in here, but but I really do think that even years later, there's no reason why this cannot actually be dealt with um, and that there can be some accountability for what took place there. Julius, would you like to give our listeners the background on Alta's involvement, how you guys decided there's uh, grounds here for getting the court and the NPA to look at Aurora again? No, sure, thanks. Um, I think uh, listeners can also recall that the Aurora directors have been found guilty on a civil case uh, that was raised by the mine workers and so on. I mean, this happened around 2015. It's about eight years following um, this dismantling and all the shenanigans that happened at the mine. But this was a civil case. Now, according to criminal experts, you know, civil cases take much longer usually than criminal cases. And the reason I'm raising uh, the criminal side of it is uh, the Grootvlei area where acid mine drainage was discharged in was a Ramses site. Now, that is a world-renowned protected wetland area. 
and it lost its status because of acid mine drainage and all this. And um, the Department of Water and Sanitation had an agreement of a water use license uh, with the Groot Flame Mine that they had to um, consistently pump the acid mine water from its shafts, shaft three specifically, and uh, the directives were also that, the, or the water use license rather, uh, had to ensure that these, the mine or the directors, discharge water at an acceptable standard, meaning they had to neutralize the acid uh, water so that they can discharge it into the environment which would then obviously dilute uh, with the rivers and streams and be cleaned by the wetland in a natural space. So that's usually how it works. Now, a very interesting fact um, around acid mine drainage, which people might be familiar with, it's the taxpayer that, that has to pay for treatment these days in general uh, to, to treat acid mine drainage because it's a, a historical phenomenon. So... What they say is that all the old gold mines along the the Rand um, and you know Johannesburg uh, closed down many years ago, and the repercussions is these mines closed down and left, and this acid mine drainage consistently um, ran out and, and polluted our environment, and new legislation came into play ensuring that uh, this doesn't happen again. So everyone's always been blaming mines from decades ago that they are the cause of pollution. Yet here we're sitting with a, a company with directors that are liable under the Companies Act that under our watch, literally just over a decade ago, committed pollution and as, as mine drainage because these very pumps were pulled out, some of it sold, Diane mentioned that uh, these assets uh, of the mine were stripped and sold for scrap metal, not only by illegal miners, but actually by the direct directors in the company themselves. So the pollution has taken place. The Department of Water Affairs back then and Environmental Affairs have issued these directives and non-compliance to these uh, directors of Aurora, and nothing happened. Now, According to environmental and water legislation, when you receive a directive and you don't comply and you don't fix the problem, you are liable criminally to a fine and even imprisonment. And that's where we picked it up. Uh, the very uh, Marius Kiet, I think he was in back in the department uh, doing that investigation back then, has opened that criminal case um, for the Department of Water or the Department of Environmental Affairs back then. And then, um, you know, this was opened and driven, but when we started inquiring, listen, what's happening to this case with the National Prosecution Authority, a very strange thing started happening. It was like, it was almost put on pause or put on the back burner uh, for a reason. And those influences we can make our own assumptions on because it's, quite historically evident on who made the decisions back then. But we started applying pressure and following up with the National Prosecution Authority. In fact, uh, these very directors had to show up in court and account uh, for these criminalities. However, the case was struck off the roll. Why and is that? Can you give us more information or background on that decision? 
Yes, sure. So um, the the National Prosecution Authority uh, senior prosecutor said that it needs to be investigated further to gather more evidence. That was pre-COVID, am I right? And that was pre-COVID. That's correct. It was pre-COVID and the information they've had at hand. I mean, it, it baffles one's mind that directors can be civilly liable because of what they've done and the repercussions thereof, um, criminally liable for the pollution, yet that cannot be proven. I, I, I just don't understand how the courts have made that decision. But yes, here we're sitting and it is, uh, what, about um, 16 years later almost, and we are still waiting for the outcome of a criminal case. And, um, you know, I, I like to to refer to it because, yes, there's a civil side of it on regarding the mine and, and people losing their their livelihoods. And, and you, you're so right, Diane. I also can recall, and yourself, Ilza, that there's individuals that committed suicide. I remember the one conversation with uh, um, an ex-mine uh, employee saying that he's, he's going to drink ant poison, you know, and... and kill himself because he doesn't know how to move on with his life and look after his family. And, and sadly, some of these, these people did it. Yet, the very directors are living lavishly and enjoying the comfort of lifestyles of kings. Do you see, uh, Diane and Julius, do you foresee that any of these criminal cases might eventually end up being prosecuted with people seeing the inside of a jail? Or is this just one of those things that we must accept happened and we must forget about it and move on? Well, well I personally don't think that we must accept. You know, if I, if I believe that we must accept and move on, I certainly wouldn't have written this book. Um, in terms of practical time, it took me three years to write, but this has been something that's been part of my life for over a decade. And the reason that it has stuck with me is because this is not a faceless, nameless, victimless crime. We actually know a lot of what happened. And part of the reason why we know that is because during the master's inquiry, um, the directors were called themselves and asked to explain what happened. Now, they're not able to use their testimony from the master's inquiry in the criminal proceedings. However, they would be able to use documents that were received during the course of, of, of those proceedings to be able to build a case. And there are lots of documents available because they had to, you know, put that together as part of their inquiry. Even in the in the High Court civil case, there was a lot of information that had to be put together to come together with that case. That case, basically, the directors were being held liable for being delinquent directors, and they needed to really prove that in detail. So, you know, they used what was submitted during the inquiry. They used um, information that was submitted by Aurora at the beginning of the process, so they bid documents, a whole variety of information to prove that they were delinquent directors. And the court found that they, that they were. I don't believe that it would be impossible for the police to go to the court and retrieve that information and start to build some sort of a case. There's even a case that was submitted by the liquidators themselves over a fraudulent letter, 
which I do write about in my book as well, fraudulent letter for 20 million rands. Um, and, and I mean, the, essentially, the letter helped Aurora to remain on the mines longer because one of the lawyers who was involved, Kali Smith, basically admitted that he'd received the letter, that he made a claim that there was money in his trust account, but the money was not in the trust account. And that's actually quite straightforward. Like what, what was said, what was the, the real situation? And you can see that, that there's a fraud. And that case is one of the cases submitted by the liquidators to the Hawks and nothing's happened. Even if you look at the judgment from Judge Bertelsmann, some of his pronouncements or, and statements he makes are very strong about the conduct of the liquidators. You know, he says that, you know, there was disregard for the consequences of their actions, both in respect of the insolvent companies and in respect of the mine workforce. And this was indisputably reckless. And he, he says that, you know, there's no way they could have not known that there would be these consequences. So you would think that something should and can be done about it. And I think that's why I wrote this book, so that there is a record that we don't forget and that we also understand that crimes are not just numbers in the air. They are incidents that affect people's lives. How many workers were affected in total? Have you ever um, done the calculations? Well, there were about 5,000 workers um, employed between the mines. Some of them were able to get subsequent jobs. When I last spoke to the liquidators, and this is now the liquidators for Aurora, because Aurora was also liquidated, they said that they had an outstanding claims of over 2,000. So over 2,000 workers had gone to them and said they believe that they are still owed money. Okay. Only around 300 of the overall 5,000 actually got right. paid. So I just want to add to the, the question it's asked, you know, so 5,000 workers affected, but what people don't always understand is the effect on the economy in that community. Uh, you know, these are people who get a wage, a salary, they need to pay schools, they need to buy groceries. So the ripple effect in the whole economy in that community was, it was devastating. Oh, it basically destroyed towns. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the effect. And I, and I just want to pick up on what Diane also, also saying, you know, and, and thank you so much for publicizing this book, Diane. Uh, people need to read it. And, and, you know, we need to see these di directors being personally held accountable. And, and I think we're also not going to stop, you know. We're still uh, following up with the NPA and we want to ensure that Aurora directors be held criminally liable. You know, um, I think from an environmental point of view, and the reason we've taken that, it's very similar to Al Capone. You know, you, you want these guys to be in jail. That's where they need to be for the conduct. Um, but environmental legislation is retrospective. So if they believe that they can get away with it, um, one can definitely challenge them on historical uh, pollution issues. And we just hope that with new administration in the Department of Water and Sanitation and, and things changing from a political perspective, that there will be less influence and, and more capable independent work being conducted to hold these individuals to account. 
I'm a layperson, but what I would like to know, Diane, you touched on it, that certain evidence in the civil case cannot be, it's there, but it hasn't been used in the criminal investigation. Is it a case of the one trial and the evidence that were brought there, um, the record is excluded from being used in a second trial, or how does it work? Because ordinary people will say, but if it's there, if it's on record, why can it not be used to prosecute somebody? Well, look, if it were a normal trial, then there would be a possibility of using it. But this was an inquiry done by the master of the high high court. Um, And that inquiry is done in terms of... um, I can't remember now the name of the legislation, but, you know, it's the insolvency group of legislation. So so it is done for the purpose of the master finding out what happened during a liquidation process. If the master suspects that, for example, money was stolen or just that something went wrong, they are able um, to call for an inquiry. Okay. The people can go and then give evidence in there, but they have some protection in that they, what they come and tell the master can't be used again against them directly. But if there are documents that are submitted, or if the police were to do further work and find out from people, say, for example, Julius went and testified there, they could go to Julius and say, you testified in this, would you be willing to also give us a statement as the police? There's nothing that stops the police from doing that. It's just that they can't do a carbon copy of what was done in the inquiry. But it gives them leads, it gives them the relevant information of what path they should follow. Okay, so can we say that there's either a lack of capacity or a lack of political will, or would it be a lack of both if we don't see justice for the people affected by Aurora? I don't know if it's political will or capacity. It may just be a a, a lack of interest. But I, I think that, you know, we often have cases of corruption in South Africa and we move past them very quickly. And, and, and it's mainly because we have, we see them every day. You know, there's Prasa, there's Aurora, there's this and that. And every time you move past to the next one, you just forget about what came before. Um, and, I, and I think that, unfortunately, that's been become part of our, our culture as South Africans. What I would hope is that by doing this kind of deep investigative work, people are able to see that even though we might have moved past it in our psyches, people are still affected by it. So that impact is going to not just be for these people, it will be for their families, it will be for their children to come. And that's the true impact of, you know, something like this. Julius, anything to add? No, I, I, you know, I concur with that. I think it is the sad reality in South Africa that there's just so much going on. And um, I think there's a a change in some nature of some of the individuals who make these decisions that that's almost a we don't care mentality. But I do believe that there's been a lot of political influence and meddling uh, to disrupt the system and to disrupt cases such as this to come to the fore. And, you know, it's very important that civil society continue applying the pressure and being a watchdog, you know, to ensure that this doesn't happen again. But we should not lose hope either. You know, I think there's a lot of good people still working in these structures that need our support. And hopefully, as soon as you start one or two individuals 
of that stature in government or political affiliation being held accountable and go to jail, I trust that there will be a ripple effect that changes the habit or the, the, the views and how some of these individuals interact in the country. Because, you know, sadly, Ilza, human nature is quite selfish. And um, if everything was working and, you know, the, the mine or the miners still had jobs and re receiving salaries, people don't care about corruption, you know, but as soon as it affects your livelihood personally, or from a service delivery point of view, not getting what you're paying for, people get interested. And that, that is just sad. So I hope that all these miners can at least get to a point where they see that the directors do go to jail and that they can have peace of mind so they can get closure on this. And maybe we've reached that point in the history of the country. In 2010, corruption was a far away sort of idea that affected a handful of people. I don't even think people noticed the news stories about the despair in the communities of Aurora and Springs. But now with so many municipalities collapsing, with Joburg sitting with sinkholes and potholes and a lack of water and a mayor that is just not interested in, well, a coalition that's not interested in really fixing the city, Maybe we have a new appetite for the sort of stories that comes out of books like yours, Diane. I would hope so. I would hope that people get upset enough. Um, you know, I was having another conversation with someone and, and I asked them what's their in emotion that they got from, from the book. And they said that they were enraged. And that's actually how I would like people to feel after reading it. We need to get enraged enough that we do something about the political environment that we're we're living in. It's so devastating because, um, you know, a book can be written very well, but for yourself to witness this firsthand and be in that community, I can remember when I was visiting there and seeing how poor and hopeless these individuals are and people threatening to commit suicide, that um, one of the directors ran up a barbell that night of 74,000 rand, and this was in 2010. I mean... The, the thick-skinned individuals that just have no care about their fellow South African, it, it's just, it was really devastating. Just an aside, do these um, individuals, Zondwa Mandela and Kulubusi Zuma, do they still have this money or was it spent? What do you know about their financials, Diane? Well, the interesting thing is that the money trail doesn't necessarily lead to Zondwa Mandela or, or Kulubusi Zuma. The money trail leads to some of the backers of a family called the Bana family, um, who were very intricately involved in the deal. And some of it has been retrieved by the liquidators. They've retrieved, um, I think, over 10 million rand from that process. But of course, there's also a lot of money that's not necessarily tangible. If you look at the, at the asset stripping that took place there with some of the workers saying that payments were made um, you know, in cash and that records were not necessarily kept of smelting and records were not necessarily kept of what was being sold off. You, you're not sure that what the liquidators have on paper is really the full picture. Uh, Kulubuse Zuma, to his credit, um, has paid some money back into to the liquidators, but he hasn't paid the full amount that he promised to pay. Zondra Mandela and Tulani Ngubani, the other uh, director, they pleaded pro poverty 
And um, even though they were found liable, there was no money to get back from them. So the, 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 the liquidators decided not to pursue further cases because you, you'll know that it costs a lot of money to litigate. So they kind of looked at the situation and, and looked at where they could actually get money and focused on that aspect and, and focused on getting retrieving funds from Kulubuse Zuma. They never continued with litigation against Michael Halley because his link to the company was not as clear. Um, yes, he was listed as a director, but on his own evidence and also on evidence given by other people, he wasn't actually actively involved in the process. So he was not listed as a party to the to the civil case. And that's kind of the end of the story for him. So, you know, the claims that the workers have now put in could potentially come from any funds received from Kulubuse Zuma if that goes ahead. But then there's also an, another ongoing court case in which the directors of Aurora are taking the directors, the sorry, the, the liquidators of Aurora are taking the liquidators of Pamodzi to court because they believe that too much money was paid in legal fees. And those are the current ongoing matters where, you know, there's all these legal battles, but at the end of the day, the, the people are yet to receive their final outcome and their final payments. Your book and our discussion also tells us about the euros, the whistleblowers, and then the people like the liquidators moving in. Some of them are, are good people. Like you said now, um, some of them may rather run up legal costs than pay out the people in need. What is the lessons that can be learned from a case like Aurora when it comes to whistleblowing? Do we give them enough credit? And also then liquidators, because in the light of the murder of Clitor Murray and his son, Thomas Murray, liquidators are not well-liked people. I think that there's there's a lot that possibly needs to be unpacked within the liquidation industry. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but just in my dealings with this case, it's, it's very complicated. There's a lot of money that goes through that. Um, and, I, and I would say that maybe there's a case to be made for there to be better oversight um, as to how liquidations unfold. Because if you think about it, Aurora was on those mines for over a year. I think it was closer to 18 months. And in that time, yes, there were liquidators involved, but there were also reports from workers of asset stripping and there were complaints about what was going on. And it was only after months and months went by that the master's office actually stepped in. And one can imagine if they had stepped in sooner, maybe the outcome could have been different. So I think there is a need for the liquidation processes to be tightened up and to be looked at so that the right things happen. People who are appointed are actually legally the right types of people and that, you know, monies don't disappear in any way. And Julius, you said that environmental processes weren't adhered to. So basically what I'm hearing from both of you is, again, governance, transparency, accountability. I think at the end of the day, accountability is the most important thing because transparency and governance means nothing if it's uh, you know not adhered to and there's no proper enforcement that follows. And I think that's, that's what's lacking in general in South Africa. Uh, I think... Sometimes we are over-legislated. The real problem is the follow-up and action that's needed to hold individuals to account. 
Uh, anything else you guys want to add? You know, I, I would hope that people would buy the book and, and read it. Um, and also just kind of think about where we are as a country and how this story fits into some of our broader problems that we have as a nation. And maybe even it can form the basis of us starting to think of some solutions also going forward. Yes, I was about to say that if you read the Aurora story and if you are aware of it, if you've followed it in the media, you will realize that this was one of the earliest cases of a form of capture, be it state capture or capture by a certain group over another group, that led to actual misery, despair, death, and absolute heartbreaking stories. And just to read that, Diane Walker's book, How to Steal a Goldmine, The Aurora Story, is on that level absolutely worthwhile because you will get mad, you will want to get even. And I think that is what we need, is we need to look back at the recent past and decide that this is not going to be our future. And Diane, for that, I salute you. Thank you for keeping these stories alive. And Julius, I hope that Alta can one day drive the case that will bring accountability um, over this whole issue and maybe help close a chapter in the lives of the workers, even though it will not bring any compensation to them. I think it will just be nice to see justice. I fully support that. Thank you so much, Ilsa. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Julius, and thank you, Ilsa. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel to stay updated. If you appreciate Alta's efforts, visit alta.co.za to donate.